going to do something slightly different uh, for the message, but I'd like to read from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8. And verse 22, Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. It's page 1012 in the Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Amen. Some questions in life that don't matter much. What do you want for dinner? Doesn't matter much. What's your favourite colour? Even in the west of Scotland, I would suggest that doesn't matter much. Would you like fries with that? Maybe a cardiologist would beg to differ, but it doesn't matter much. But then there is a, another tier of questions, and how you answer the second tier of questions will make a big difference to how your life looks. Do you love me? Will you marry me? What would my life look like now if in 2003 Deborah had said, no. <laughs> How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Do you think this chicken looks a wee bit undercooked? <laughs> That's your second tier of questions. There is one question 
at the very top of the tree. One question that towers over every other question. Scripture is full of questions, and Jesus loved to ask questions. Jesus often answered a question by asking another question. But the one question that he asked, which seems to resonate throughout the whole Bible, and from generation to generation throughout eternity, is the question that he asked his disciples in Mark chapter 8. What about you? Who do you say I am? And it is my contention that Jesus, just as he asked that question to his followers 2,000 years ago, in a very real way, asks that question to us here today. Who do you say I am? What about you? And there are many ways that you can correctly, you can rightly answer that question. You can say he is Lord. You can say he is Savior. You can say uh, he is the second Adam. You can say he is the Lion of Judah. You can say he is the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. Peter answered well. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, which is not a surname, it's a title. The Greek word Christos is the translation, the Greek translation for Messiah. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. And Messiah literally means anointed one. You are the anointed one, says Peter, you are the Messiah. God's people knew that they were called to wait for an anointed one to come and deliver them. They knew that they were called to wait for the Messiah. And you think when you come to Mark chapter 8 that Peter at last has got it. It's taken eight long chapters and as you read those chapters you think, how did the disciples not see? Because obviously we've got the benefit of hindsight, as it were. How do they not see who Jesus is? And then you come to this question that Jesus asks in Mark 8, and Peter answers you, are the Christ. You think, that's it. At last, it's taken you eight chapters, Peter, but at last, now you've got it. At last, you understand. At last, you have arrived. Until you get to verse 31. So it's like one verse, you think, Peter's got it. And then verse 31 Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter understands for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the anointed one of God, but he doesn't really understand what that means. That's why I read from uh, the, the, the story of the blind man that Jesus healed just before this encounter with the disciples. Jesus uh, is presented with this blind man and he spits, I know this is disgusting to us in um, 2016 uh, in the UK, but it would have been more common in Jesus' day, spits in his eyes. And is he healed? He's kind of half healed, isn't he? The blind man can see something. He can see people, but they look like trees. It's blurry. It's not clear 
cut. He's on his way, but he's not arrived. And then Jesus touches his eyes again, and he can see. Why, why does Jesus choose to heal the man like that? It's not that he was having an off day. I mean, Jesus is the one who can speak to someone who is dead and just with the words from his lips cause them to live. It's not that he lacks power or authority. He could have healed that man, brought that man's sight back with just a word from his lips. But he chooses to do it in stages. And then the Holy Spirit inspires uh, Mark to record it in this order. So we have this staged healing, and then we have this encounter between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and Peter. And most scholars think the reason this is, is because Jesus is using this blind man almost as an illustration of what is happening to the disciples. Their eyes are beginning to open. They're beginning to see who Jesus is, but they're not quite there yet. And I think that ought to offer us some encouragement because for most of us, not all of us, some of us were a million miles away from God as far as it seemed to us and we went into a meeting or we read a tract or, you know, we went to Parkhead in 1991, Billy Graham spoke, and we came out and it, that was a, you know, instant we were a million miles away, we heard the gospel, um, we believed in Jesus, and that was it. But for most of us, it seems to us to be a much more gradual progression, doesn't it? We, we begin to see something of who Jesus is, but it's a bit blurred. It's not quite crystal clear. And then God graciously, over the weeks or months or years or decades, begins to open our eyes until we see him much more clearly. And we know who he is, and we know how we ought to respond to him. So, what does Messiah mean? Peter saw that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the anointed one, but he didn't know what that meant. So, what does it mean? Well, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there were three types of people that God gave to the Israelites to help them. And these type of people were often anointed with oil as they took up their role. So much like the queen, when she was coronated, she was presented with a crown on her head. There was a kind of physical act that said, now you are the queen. Or when the queen herself bestows a knighthood on someone, I believe she takes a sword and she touches their shoulders. There's a kind of physical act that says, now this is what you are. Well, under the old covenant, there were three roles that God's people could step into. And if they took on that role, it could be ratified by anointing that person's head with oil. Three prophetic, uh, three offices rather, that could um, be ratified by the anointing of oil. And the first of those, I can remember my clicky thing here, is the prophetic office. Prophet could be anointed 
by oil. Jesus, as the anointed one, came as the perfect prophet. Now, a prophet is not someone, contrary to popular thought, not someone who can predict the future in Scripture. A prophet is someone who is sent by God to take God's message, to take God's word to God's people. The problem with people in our sinful state is that we are ignorant. We don't understand who God is. We don't understand what God requires. And so God raises up prophets in the Old Testament to speak God's words, to reveal something of who He is and what He requires of God's people. So we have this picture before, before the fall of humanity of Adam and Eve in the garden, and there's this picture of Adam and Eve enjoying fellowship with God. They understand who God is. They know God. Uh, they, they, are, they are in God's presence all the time. And then after the fall, they're cast out of the garden, and suddenly humanity is ignorant. Humanity doesn't know who God is anymore. And so God has to raise up prophets to speak His Word to His people, to remind them of who He is. Jesus came as the greatest of the prophets. Indeed, He is the one that the prophets pointed forward to. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus is in the synagogue. And Luke records for us, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He is the one the prophets pointed forward to. Why is he better than the other prophets? Well, Jesus firstly spoke with greater authority than the other prophets. The other prophets would come and they would say, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus had authority to say, truly, truly, I say to you. He had the very authority of God. He never had to worry about whether the prophet was presenting the right message. He had the authority of God. And unlike the other prophets, Jesus is the Word of God. He didn't just come to preach the good news. He came to be the good news. He isn't just the speaker of the sermon. He's the subject of the sermon. He doesn't just speak the Word of God. He is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We sang just a few moments ago, didn't we? You're the Word of God the Father from before the world began. Every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. All creation holds together by the power of your voice. Let the skies declare your glory. Let the land and seas 
rejoice. God communicates who he is perfectly in the Son. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you've heard the voice of Jesus, you've heard the voice of God. He is God's finest act of communication to a lost and confused and ignorant world. Hebrews opens with these words. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So our sin kind of shuts our eyes and our ears to who God is, but Christ opens them. We see Christ, we see God. If we hear Christ, we hear the very voice of God. He is the perfect prophet. Secondly, he is the perfect priest. That was the second office that God gave to his people, which was often ratified by the anointing of oil on the head. He is the perfect prophet priest. We are not just ignorant because of the fall, because of our sin. We are guilty before God. Our sin separates us from Him. And so God has to raise up priests in the old covenant to stand in the gap and to intercede on behalf of people. It's almost as if the prophet speaks to men and women on behalf of God. But the priest speaks to God on behalf of men and women. He intercedes for sinful humanity, and we see Jesus doing that in the great high priestly prayer of John 17. If you know that, then uh, you can uh, enjoy those words. Jesus prays for us. He prays for his followers throughout the generations. If you're not familiar with that prayer, that's your homework tonight, John chapter 17, Jesus speaks to God for us in the high priestly prayer. But the priest's job wasn't just to pray for the people. The priest's job uh, was to offer sacrifices for sinful humanity as well. It's a sign that people recognize the seriousness of their sin. The priest, in many ways, if you read through uh, Leviticus, the priest, and I don't say this irreverently, But the priest in many ways was like a butcher. The temple was a place with a lot of blood being spilt. And as people went to the temple and they saw all this blood, they would have been reminded in a very powerful way of how serious their sin was and how holy their God was. And it's a great tragedy that our society and to a large extent our church in this country has lost sight both of the seriousness of our sin and the holiness of our God. The priest administered the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They kind of stood in the line of Aaron. So, first of all, they would offer uh, the the priest, especially the high priest on uh, Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, would offer a a sacrifice for his sin and the sins of his family. 
then there would be two goats and he would take these goats. The first one would be sacrificed as a picture of God's righteous anger at the sin of his people. Again, the blood would be shed and it would speak to the people of the seriousness of their sin and the holiness of their God. And then the priest would do something very powerful. He would take the second goat, this is where we get the word scapegoat from, he would place his hands on the head of the second goat and pronounce all of the sins of God's people over the head of this goat as if the sins are being transferred onto this goat. And then the goat would be led away, cast away out into the wilderness. And that would be a picture of, of God taking those sins far away from his people. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. How far has he taken our sins away? As far as the east is from the west. Two pictures. Firstly, God's righteous wrath, God's righteous anger at sin. The first goat. And secondly, God taking those sins away by means of the scapegoat, the second goat. The priest administered the sacrifices. But Jesus is the great high priest, the better priest. Actually, you know, Scripture says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. If, if I owed someone, one of you guys, a lot of money, if, if I owed Sam a hundred pounds and I turned up on Sam's door one day and I got my pen out, or Katie's pen out, and I wrote this. You probably won't read that from there. Can you read that? I owe you £100. If I presented that to Sam, how, how much of the debt would be paid? Not, not a penny, I hear you say. Not, not a penny would be paid. But Sam might still take that bit of paper if I signed it here. Sam might still take that piece of paper because it shows him that I know and I'm acknowledging that I owe him £100. I'm saying to Sam, look, I know I owe you this money and I'm taking it seriously. I'm not sweeping it under the carpet. I'm taking it seriously and when I get the means to pay you, I will pay you. So Sam may, although none of the debt would actually be paid, Sam may be willing to take that piece of paper uh, as a token of how much I recognize my debt to him. And that's all, that all of those Old Testament sacrifices, that's all they were. They were just like a piece of paper, an IOU note to God. They were a way of God's people, a God-ordained way of God's people saying to God, we know that our sin is serious, really serious. We know we owe you this huge debt and we're taking it seriously. If we could pay it back, we would. And it also pointed forward to the true payment, to the true sacrifice, to the one sacrifice that made the difference the sacrifice of Jesus himself. No one will be in heaven because of the blood of a bull or a goat. Uh, 
or any other animal. Those who were involved in the temple sacrifices will get to heaven because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the temple sacrifices were there, note, to say they recognized the seriousness of their sin. And it pointed forward to the one sacrifice which counted the sacrifice of Jesus. So Jesus is the perfect priest because he didn't just administer the sacrifice. He became the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. The perfect and pure lamb slain for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why it's important that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. Sounds like a kind of uh, a Christological point for theological geeks, not really relevant just for the, you know, the seminaries and for these big weighty books, but it's actually central to the gospel that Jesus was fully human and fully God. He was fully human because it was humanity that owed this debt to God. And so it had to be a human being that stood in as a kinsman redeemer, that stood in place as a representative for humanity. It had to be a human being. But the problem is we're all slaves to sin. None of us are perfect. So humanity owed this great debt to God, but only God actually had the means to pay it. Only God is perfect and pure. Only God could conquer death itself. And so Jesus, as the God-man, as fully God and fully man, was able to stand in the gap and to offer the sacrifice of himself as our kinsman redeemer, a sinless sacrifice, the perfect priest as he hung on the cross and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. He wasn't referring to his pain. He was referring to his mission. He had lived under the law. He had lived a perfect life in submission to God, his Father. And yet he died a sinner's death on the cross for us. It is finished. It is achieved. It is accomplished. My mission is done. And then he rose on the third day he ascended. He took his place at the right hand of God the Father. If you had a meal uh, in those days and you invited people around to your house, you could tell who the host liked most because that person would be at the right, seated at the right hand of the host. So Jesus takes the most honored place in heaven and he sits down, something the priests were never allowed to do because the work of the priesthood was never finished. But that's the one perfect sacrifice offered, so Jesus sits down. And then what does he do? He intercedes for us. He prays for us. Murray McShane said something along the lines of, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is interceding for us. He knows you and I by name. And he is praying to his Father on our behalf. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. 
the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. He is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest. And lastly, he is the perfect king. Revelation 19, 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword to wit, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Nowadays in our country, the queen is a figurehead, really. She has a hard job. I don't envy her at all. But she really is a figurehead. She doesn't have the power and the authority that monarchs used to have. And in Scripture, a king was more than just a figurehead. A king, if he was a good king, firstly, would lead from the front in war. He was a military ruler. And secondly, a king was the ultimate judge. He was the supreme court. Jesus has conquered our enemies. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. Jesus is the greatest king. In the Old Testament, you know, there's one king who stands above all other kings, and that's King David. He's a kind of archetypal king. And David's greatest moment in Scripture, actually before he became king, was when Goliath was there, this giant military warrior, and he's taunting all of God's people, he's mocking all of God's people, and no one's willing to step forward to fight Goliath. And then, of course, out comes David with his wee sling, and Goliath looks down at David, and he's insulted. He's insulted. You know, why would you send a boy to fight a man? Why would you send a boy to fight a giant? Why would you send a boy to fight a champion? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? It is a mismatch of epic proportions. There was a boxing match on uh, last night, and one of the guys had given up two weights to fight in this, uh, this match, this contest, and a lot of people are saying it's totally unfair, it's a total mismatch, because although he's managed to get up the weights, he's not really a, whatever it was, middleweight or whatever, he really belongs at this weight, it's a huge mismatch and it's not fair, well this is the mismatch to end all mismatches, Goliath and David, and yet who wins? David wins. David wins, not on behalf just of himself, but on behalf of God's people. Those trembling people looking up at Goliath, that's who David wins for. And that's like us. We are the Israelites in the story. We're not David. We're the Israelites. We're cowering in the corner. You know, death is, is, is up there, laughing at us, taunting us. And we just think to ourselves, you know, if I don't think about it, if I don't talk about it, if I don't go somewhere that I'll see it, 
then maybe I'll be able to convince myself that it doesn't exist, that it's not coming for me, but it casts its shadow, casts its shadow over life. Then, as we stand cowering in the corner, as death towers over us, taunting us, laughing at us, mocking us, out comes Jesus. It seems so unlikely that Jesus would win. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He's rejected by the very ones who ought to have received him with open arms. He endures the agonies of Gethsemane and then the, the pain and the shame of the cross. He didn't have to. As Elaine prayed this morning, he could have called down an army of angels to lift him away. But he willingly chose to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. And by his death, he defeats death. How do we know? Because on the third day, God raised him from death. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in God's love and in his grace. And so we have a song to sing even in the deepest and the darkest of valleys, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we are a triumphant people because Christ has conquered in our place. We are a victorious people. He rules and he reigns. He is Lord of all. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is victorious. And nothing will ever be able to rob him or us of that victory. One day the king will come again. One day his kingdom will come in all of its fullness. And he will come as the conquering king and he will come as the judge, as Bill uh, unpacked for us this morning. He will come to judge the living and the dead. He will not have sin swept under the carpet. Every sin will be brought out into the light and dealt with one way or the other. And many will get a surprise on that day. For some, he will say, away from me, I never knew you. And to others, he will turn and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his true subjects, and he will welcome us into our heavenly home forever. True and lasting joy is found in surrendering to the Lordship of Christ today. The society that we all live in, it's like in the days of uh, the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes in our society. And it's celebrated. If this is who you want to be, if this is how you want to behave, then don't let anyone stop you. Don't let anyone judge you. But true joy is found in bowing the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledging his rule and his reign in your life 
I am looking forward to that day when he will come again. Oh, to have a king that knows us and loves us and died for us and lives to intercede for us. That is our king. And we honor him together as we stand to sing our last hymn.